It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, October the 13th, 2021. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time, or around the clock on demand for free on the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Everything available right there. GuyBensonShow.com. Coming up today, Molly Hemingway is out with her new book. She will join us in studio from New York. Jonah Goldberg will be here also in the next hour. Looking forward to chatting with him as always. Brian Riedel on the math and the budget stuff with the Democrats at each other's throats still. Plus a very interesting talking point crumbles again on the left. We'll see if they care about actual facts or information. We do here, and we will bring that to you with Brian coming up later in the show. Fox News alert as we begin. COVID cases all in, 44.5 million across the country, across all these months dating back to last winter. That number is a lowball estimate based on confirmed tests. The death toll of or with COVID in the United States 717,501. The Dow is down 23 points right now to 34,355. Keep an eye on that. And another Fox News alert as we come to the air here on this Wednesday. The president of the United States, Joe Biden, is now at the White House addressing the country about supply chains and the economy. This is a burgeoning problem. It seems to be getting worse. The White House recognizes that it's getting worse. I saw they were quoted. Some some White House official was quoted in Reuters yesterday saying, oh, yeah, people aren't going to be able to get some stuff at Christmas. That is not exactly the message that a struggling White House wants to give the, to the American people. Dial back your Christmas expectations for your family. That is some strong Jimmy Carter vibes, does it not? So President Biden, they've written a speech for him, and he's now reading it. And we will go to that live, at least for a little bit, dipping in to President Biden at the White House right now. It's because they've invested in their workers, their workers' skills, and training up front to be able to adapt. We need to invest in making more of our products right here in the United States. Never again should our country and our economy be unable to make critical products we need because we don't have access to materials to make that product. Never again should we have to rely too heavily on one company or one country or one person in the world, particularly when countries don't share our values when it comes to labor and environmental standards. All right, so that's President Biden. We'll keep an eye on what he is saying, and I actually agree with that one point that he's making, that you just heard. The supply chain reliance on places like China, he didn't say that word in that snippet that we just listened live together when he was talking about foreign countries or entities that don't share our values that we lean on too heavily. Never again should that be the case for essential products and essential goods. I agree. I think that's a, la- a long-standing problem, especially if it's a hostile country that we're relying on. 
Now, that's one piece of a broader puzzle here, and there are a lot of things hitting the U.S. economy all at once. And what should have been a rebound, a pretty easy layup of a rebound, has actually been very complicated. COVID is dragged on. Inflation is hitting. There's another inflation number out today, 13-year high on that measure. You've got a shortage of goods and services. You've got a shortage of workers, people quitting their jobs, job growth weak. I mean, the headwinds, the crosswinds, they are blowing. They are blustery. And a lot of it is self-inflicted by this president, by his administration, by their policies. And what they want to do is double down on a lot of it. Say, oh, yeah, we see that inflation. Let's spend trillions more. Oh, yeah, we see that weak job growth. Let's tax job creators more. What I want to begin with as we monitor President Biden is a piece that I wrote today at townhall.com just about the state of Democrats being in disarray on a number of fronts. I just mentioned the economy. Here's an interesting nugget out of the state of Iowa, the Hawkeye state. Is this the most important story in the country today? No. Is this totally indicative of the political environment? No. Is it an interesting breadcrumb as we think about the political environment heading into elections this year and, of course, next year? Absolutely. Last night in Iowa, there was a special election for a state house seat. This district, the 29th district of Iowa, had been controlled, that seat controlled by Democrats for decades. That seat has not been in Republican hands for decades. By the way, just to interrupt myself and my train of thought for a moment, President Biden finished his remarks and walked away, no questions. Who's surprised? They said, "Uh uh-oh, this is our latest crisis. Let's write some words on the prompter, send the man out. He'll read it and walk away. He's not keen on answering questions on anything, and he did not again today. So we didn't miss much there. We said we were monitoring it. We monitored it for about four seconds, and he walked off with no questions. Terrific. He's doing great. Everything's great. Okay, back to Iowa. So this is a seat in the state legislature in Iowa. As I said, decades have passed since the Republicans had this district or this seat. And that changed last night. The Republican in the race won. That is a flip. That's a pickup, which gives now a supermajority to the Republicans. I believe it's now 60-40, if I recall correctly, uh, in that chamber for the GOP. They have a significant majority and they've built on it. And here's what's interesting about this particular district. Trump won it. So you might say it's not a huge upset or a huge surprise, except, as I said, this district was blue in terms of its representation for years, for decades. And it wasn't that long ago that it wasn't even really close or competitive. For example, in 2018, which was a big Democratic year, we remember the blue wave of 2018, you know, the midterm of. Trump in office and the backlash and all of that, that seat was retained by the Democratic Party, by the incumbent, and the margin was big, 59% to 41%. That's not close, right? That's an 18-point margin. That is a safe victory, right? That is a comfortable Democratic hold. That was three years ago. In 2012, that seat was 62-38 Dem, not even close. 
Now, it started to get a little closer in 2016, but the Democrats carried it easily, double digits. They expanded the margin, as I said, again in 2018. And then in 2020, with Trump on the ballot, and he won this district, the Democrat who represented this seat hung on but barely by three points. What happened last night? This blue district for decades that as recently as three years ago was an 18-point Democrat seat went Republican by 20 points. This was nearly a 40-point swing 2018 to this special election last night in Iowa. You might remember on this show we had my friend, who is a few years behind me at Northwestern, who ran and won for a Senate seat in Connecticut, a state Senate seat in Connecticut in sort of a affluent, well-to-do, suburban, Trump-hostile district that Republicans used to control. They've lost it in recent years. He won it back in a special election in August. That's the type of seat Republicans need to win. This is a very different kind of seat out in Iowa, obviously. The 29th District of Iowa is not Greenwich or New Canaan, Connecticut. It's a very different electorate, and yet the result was the same, a swing to the Republicans, in this case, a huge swing to the Republicans, a 20-point win last night. And when you start to just piece things together and look at the way things are going in a political cycle, these things have a way of adding up and indicating where things might be going. Now, there's another canary in the coal mine on potential wave years or potential shift of control or, you know, power swings in the country, and that is retirements from positions of power. Last evening, John Yarmuth announced that he is retiring. He's the only Democratic member of Congress left from Kentucky in a relatively safe district. It's a pretty blue district. They created one Democratic district in that state. He is the chairman of the budget committee in the House. He is a powerful chairman. By congressional standards, he's young. He's only in his early 70s. (laughs) And he announced that he's stepping aside. We saw one or two members who are going to be in tough districts already announce their retirements. After this session, This is what tends to happen when a party believes it's going to lose. Some of their members, even senior members, say, you know what? It's not worth it. Either I don't want to go through the hell of another fight and maybe lose, or I don't want the party to lose power, and then my power is diminished. I don't want to be in the minority. You know what? I'm done. We saw this at a drumbeat from Republicans ahead of 2018, which presaged a blue wave, and now here's another drip, drip, drip on Democratic retirements ahead of 2022. There's also the Democrats in disarray side of all of this, right? We talked about the development in Iowa. We talked about this uh, significant retirement here on Capitol Hill, just steps from where we're broadcasting. They are still trying to figure out what they're going to do in terms of passing an agenda. This build back better nonsense from Biden. Trillions of dollars. The White House is reportedly mad at Kirsten Cinema again. She's mad at them saying, I keep telling them what my parameters are. They keep not listening or not wanting to hear what I'm saying. Same with Manchin. There's a split there. The chairwoman of the Progressive Caucus in the House is explicitly arguing that nothing is better than something. 
It's like, oh, people keep saying, isn't passing something better than nothing? The simple answer is, quote, no. And I agree. I, I think we should all wholeheartedly root for the progressives in their pursuit of nothing over something. And then there's this whining from Speaker Pelosi yesterday. She gave a press conference, and this is such a telling soundbite where she kind of scolded the press for not doing what she wants. It's like, carry our water more, slaves. Cut four. Our latest CBS News poll shows that only about 10% of Americans describe themselves as knowing a lot of specific things that are in the reconciliation package and that the majority don't know anything at all. So do you think you need to do a better job at messaging and going forward? How do you sell this if ultimately you have to? Well, I think you all could do a better job of selling it, to be very frank with you, because every time I come here, I go through the list. It is hard to break through when you have such a comprehensive package. Yeah, they want to spend trillions of dollars. And she's mad that the media hasn't done enough to help the Democrats get the message out. You people could do better at this. It's obviously not their job, although Pelosi doesn't seem to know that. In fairness to Pelosi, this is how the media generally is. The Democrats say, this is our talking point. This is what we want. The Republicans are bad. And the media says, okay. And they go right along with it because they're all a bunch of aggressive Democrats. They're all libs. They vote lib. They're all Dems. They're one big happy family. Occasionally journalists ask questions and it ticks off the journalists because they're like, bro, you're supposed to be on the team. Get with the program. You sell this better. (laughs) It's a politician lecturing journalists to sell the political agenda better on behalf of the political team. Isn't that so revealing as to the mindset? Just the sheer amount of arrogance and entitlement, it's just amazing. If you've ever worked, you talk to people who work in Republican communications, it's just like the dynamics are completely the opposite. Pelosi also said this about the Build Back Better agenda in Cut 5, listen. Do people know where it, it springs from? No. But it is a, a vast bill. It has a lot in it. And we'll have to continue to make sure the public does. But whether they know it or not, they overwhelmingly support it. Oh, so there's overwhelming support even if people don't realize that they support it. But this is the line they keep saying. This bill has overwhelming support. OK, so there's a new CNN poll, which is actually overall an outlier. It's pretty good for Biden. It is much more favorable for Biden than almost all the other polling that's out there right now. I just saw a new YouGov poll that has Biden underwater by 10 points, majority disapproval, underwater with independence by 31 points, but not at CNN's poll. CNN's poll is like, oh, yeah, it's 50-50. The country's exactly split on Joe Biden. They're an outlier. But even in the CNN pro-Biden poll, they asked people, would you like to see this bill passed, this whole agenda with all this money? Do you want it to be pared down to spend less or do you want nothing passed at all? About 40 percent of Americans say, yes, pass the bill. Sixty percent of Americans say, make it less expensive or don't pass anything. Doesn't that scream super popular to you? Overwhelmingly popular. When a supermajority, 60 percent of the country say, actually, let's uh, let's pare it back or throw it in the garbage can. CNN also asked this. If they passed the infrastructure and build back better plans, what would happen to your family? Would your family be better off, worse off, or about the same? Better off 25%, worse off 32%, 
about the same 43%. So three quarters of the American people say their families would be worse off or no change at all if Washington, D.C. Democrats go on this spending binge of $3.5 trillion, and yet they're treating it like, we must do this, the people cry out for this. Not really. Maybe that's the media's fault again, if you ask Nancy Pelosi. There's one more thing I want to get to on this, and I will hit on it when we return, a breaking news story and a Fox News exclusive about one of the crises under President Biden. That's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on The Guy Benson Show. By the way, I just saw the clip of Biden walking away. After he gave his prepared remarks at the White House, of course, taking no questions, people shouted questions at him. Will Christmas presents arrive on time? Will Christmas be canceled, basically, sir? What about gas prices, these high gas prices? And he was just like, oh, gotta go have some warm milk and supper. And he was off. Now, before the break, I teased one more update, sort of in this Dems in disarray theme. And I have all of them laid out, a lot of the evidence at townhall.com in my piece today. This is an exclusive from our colleagues at Fox News, including Bill Malugin. Perhaps we'll get him back on the show in the coming days. He was able to obtain some documents that show that at least 160,000 illegal immigrants have been released into the United States, often with, quote, little to no supervision by the Biden administration since March. So these are the people just being released on their own recognizance. Please come back at this date, maybe show up. Many of them, of course, never do. That's 160,000. You add that on top of the 400,000 plus of known gotaways under President Biden thus far since the beginning of the year. And you are well over half a million people that are now in the country. And then, of course, there's... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. There's well over a million other encounters at the border that have occurred over that period of time. It's just mind-blowing, these numbers, these statistics. And they are getting worse because of Biden's policies. 
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com Welcome back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is available every day, totally free of charge and on demand. We are pleased to welcome in studio, although in separate studios, I'm in D.C., she's in New York. It's Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, a Fox News contributor, co-author of the book Justice on Trial. She has a new book out yesterday called Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized on uh, Seized Our Elections. And again, that's available right now at bookstores, on Amazon, wherever books are sold. It's called Rigged by Molly Hemingway. Molly, congratulations on the book. My understanding is the sales have been really terrific already. It's going great, and it's great to be here with you, even though I'm seeing you on video myself. So I feel like we're in studio together, but we're not together. Yes, and the quality sounds spectacular. So that's what matters on the radio. Molly Tell us about the book, Rigged, because I just got my copy. It showed up at my house yesterday. And you're not arguing that, you know, the election was stolen, like Democrats in some cases argued about 2016, that the Russians came in and switched votes or what have you. You're making a broader argument about the media, about big tech enterprises, about that collusion with the Democratic Party on a whole host of fronts that make the entire system feel rigged at times in the eyes of many Americans. And you provide some evidence to say, hey, look, in some cases, there is some uh, collusion and rigging going on. Yeah, I I knew that there were people who were writing books about the 2020 campaign and election. And it was sometimes the very same people that had done the fake news about the 2016 election, where they claimed that Donald Trump won by stealing the election, by colluding with Russia. And I just didn't trust those people to tell what actually happened. And so for me, I just had to research and report it myself. I interviewed people who were on the campaign all the way up to, you know, Donald Trump and people working at the state level and looked at just what this election was like. And we all know it was more different than any election we'd ever experienced. And part of that was that the media were engaged in a lot of propaganda, you know, suppressing real news stories like a year ago today when they suppressed the real news story about Biden. One year ago. Uh, It was about big tech censorship, like draconian censorship that we have never experienced at this level in our country. But it was also about the changing of election laws. There were hundreds of changes to laws and processes. Sometimes those were done legally. Sometimes they weren't done legally. That flooded the system with tens of millions of mail-in ballots. And then what I thought was most explosive from my research was looking at how Mark Zuckerberg, who's one of the world's wealthiest individuals, most powerful individuals, uh, funded a private takeover of government election offices which handle all parts of election administration, like voter registration, ballot design, voting, vote counting. And he gave $419 million. Uh, Predominantly, this went to to blue counties and swing states to uh, bring in an army of left-wing activists who handled a lot of these election issues that should have been done in a that should not, you know, you shouldn't have a tech oligarch controlling this level of election administration. This isn't campaigning. This is actual government offices that are supposed to be neutral. So, I mean, just for the record on this show, and our audience knows this, like 
Trump lost the election. Biden won the election. I've said this many, many times. I think people who have deluded themselves into thinking that this was stolen in multiple states and all this stuff, you need evidence to support those conclusions. That evidence does not exist. Some people will be angry about that, that I say it. Some people will disagree. That's fine. I think it's a very different thing to say, oh, no, this was the most secure election in the history of any election that we've ever had anywhere on Earth. And the system is great, if not perfect. And any changes or tightening up of, you know, covid or pandemic era rules that were sort of done on the fly, that's all suppression. That's all anti-democracy. I think that the left has overplayed its hand dramatically in the way that they've talked about this. And we've seen those skirmishes in Georgia and Texas. Unfortunately, uh, the left has failed in both of the places that I just mentioned with some of those laws. And you gave this example, and it's perfect on the one-year anniversary. New York Post had an editorial today saying, yeah, it was a year ago that we reported this stuff during the campaign in October of an election year about not just the president's son, not just about his personal failings or foibles or whatever, but about his business dealings and his father's potential knowledge and involvement in those business dealings overseas. And the rest of the media got together and aggressively ignored the story. Big tech aggressively censored the story to the point that it could not be shared on some platforms. The link Uh, The New York Post had its Twitter account suspended for weeks. They could not tweet about anything. The Democratic Party said this is Russian disinformation. They all said, "Okay, this is Russian disinformation, even though that is untrue. And multiple scoops from the New York Post subsequently have panned out as accurate. But that would never have been known to the average voter because there was a rigged system in this case, Molly. I'm going to use that word myself, a rigged collusion to get around and say, we don't want this to be another Hillary Clinton email thing. We do not want to risk Donald Trump winning again. We cannot allow that to happen. So we are going to link arms and suppress this story as Russian disinformation and hugely powerful institutions and tastemakers got in on this together. And you cannot tell me that that had no impact on the election. And you cannot tell me that that is not deeply, deeply creepy in its wider implications. And Guy, it's not just about what happened in 2020. It's about the fact that nothing has changed going forward. It's not like we are in a different information uh, environment now. If anything, we're in a worse information environment, and this affects elections going forward. International observers would say that if you're in a propaganda environment, if you don't have freedom of information, it does put the integrity of the election at risk. That's why it is important to address these things, not just act like, oh, I guess we have to deal with the fact that we have uh, we have systems that will suppress important information that voters have an absolute right to know. I mean, Biden family business model is to take money Members of the Biden family take money and we're not really sure what they what people get in return for the money that they're given. I mean, that's so worthy of journalistic exploration and also important for American citizens to know, because there is, of course, the very serious threat that maybe what they're getting in return is something that American taxpayers are paying for or that American policy is paying for. And so you want to know the answers to those things. Um, And going forward, they we still have, if anything, a more emboldened tech environment where they are being more aggressive in their censorship of viewpoints that they don't like or that they view as a threat to their political power. And so these are issues that absolutely everybody in the country should want taken care of. You don't want to win elections because you've totally manipulated the information environment. You want to win elections because you had the strength yeah. of argument. That's not what we have right well, now. And, 
what's interesting is to see the Democratic Party, many powerful Democratic politicians egging on big tech to engage in more censorship. Oh, and it's not necessarily surprising to see political figures wanting censorship that benefits them. That is a tale as old as time. It is a little bit weird seeing journalists advocating for censorship, which is what we are increasingly seeing. Because and through the prism of misinformation, quote unquote, some of which turns out not to be misinformation at all, despite what the vaunted gatekeepers tell us. In fact, frequently what they label as misinformation or what they claim is debunked is something that turns out to be proven true in the months or years you know, that follow. And the media are cooperating with Democrats in part because they've become more of a of an arm or, or even a leading arm of the of the Democratic Party. But this collusion between powerful tech companies that that do control a lot of our public square and the government, you know, we heard so many people talking about the F word fascism during the Trump administration. And here you have actual, you know, textbook definition of fascism, which it would be, you know, the corporations working with the government on shared goals. And they are, you know, it's happening right now. And it's very threatening. It's unbelievable. It's happening right now in this country. And I would have never imagined it was, you know, even thinkable a few years ago. Molly Hemingway is our guest. Her new book is out this week, available right now, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. And Molly, since you mentioned Hunter Biden and that whole episode, and it's one that still continues to sort of strike me as chilling. Um, and I don't know if it was you know, ultimately decisive in the election, but that combination of factors all aligning to squash negative information or a negative storyline about a presidential candidate in October of an election year. I mean, it is I word I use the word creepy. I'll use it again. Well, Hunter is back in the news. This is interesting. I assume you saw this. The Politico magazine uh, uh, investigation story. Here's the headline. It's out this week. Quote, hiding the ball, Hunter Biden complicates White House anti-corruption push. And then the sub headline is questions about the first son could detract from the president's efforts to position himself as a global good government crusader. (laughs) And I mean, that is uh, yes, they could they could complicate those efforts, couldn't they? And and detract uh, from those from those pushes that we're seeing from the administration and they get into some of this stuff, you know, flying on Air Force Two and Burisma and Ukraine and some of the emails and all of this stuff, Molly. And it's like, okay, well, now it can be said, I guess, by certain outlets. Politico can do this now. But when along a very similar line in a similar vein, the New York posted it a year ago. That really was not acceptable because there was an election. And you might remember that it was Politico, whose then reporter, Natasha, I call her Fusion Natasha, Natasha, I forget her last name. She wrote a piece about how it was actually Russian disinformation, according to 50, you know, Obama type, Obama intel officials. They thought that the Hunter Biden laptop was uh, Russian disinformation. It wasn't. And yet that story was used to justify the complete squashing of a legitimate news story. Um, But the Biden family business is, you know, similar to other politicians' businesses, but less well done, perhaps you might say, like the 
the Clinton initiative, the Clinton Global Initiative, was a way to take money from powerful countries and oligarchs and kind of launder it through a foundation. That money all kind of dried up once she didn't win the presidency. That's yeah, how a lot amazing. of a lot of powerful politicians handle this favors, you know, in in exchange for money. Yeah, all of a sudden, people weren't so interested in charity anymore, Isn't and that all weird? this, uh, you know. You know, huh. This wonderful stuff that they were doing for humanity. This the global but initiative it, was less important all of a sudden. It doesn't make it any less corrupt that we have this situation in Washington D.C. where people do give powerful family members money in exchange for goods, particularly because again, it's the American citizen and the American taxpayer that ends up paying for paying paying for the goods that are delivered in exchange for the money that's given to these individuals. Right, and it's policy of our government that might be influenced potentially in some of these cases. So the, the Daily Mail from the UK, they had an exclusive yesterday, I believe. Here's their headline, and it's on the same exact topic, same front. Exclusive, Joe Biden could become embroiled in the FBI's probe into Hunter's <laughs> finances, experts say. Emails reveal they shared bank accounts, paid each other's bills, and the president may have even funded his son's drug and, pro- and prostitution binge. I'm especially interested in this uh, this bit about sharing bank accounts so, and paying each other's bills. Also, there was an email in that I heard on Fox and Friends this morning. One of the emails said something like, I can't get your dad to respond to me, so could you sign off on this you know, business-related thing? And I thought, well, I thought that they never talked about business. Isn't that interesting? That Well, as know- a matter of fact, let's play that. It's uh, 19, 2019. Uh, this was our own Peter Ducey asking one of those pesky, annoying questions and sort of an angry, indignant, categorical answer from them candidate Joe Biden at the time in cut nine. Mr. Vice President, how many times have you ever spoken to your son about his overseas business dealings? I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. I have never discussed with my son or my brother or anyone else anything having to do with their businesses, period. All right, so there's a little two answers there, one to Ducey in 2019, then a follow-up and a question from Biden saying he's never talked to his family members, his son, his brother, about their businesses, period. Molly, I'm not really sure it's a stretch at this point to say that broad of a denial is just not true, right? we, We don't know what he's done and the extent if there's anything unethical or illegal or anything like that. I don't know. But what he said in those answers seems to be provably false at this point. And I would like to remind everybody that we already knew it was false. And we knew it was false because of two different Fox shows last year discussed this, not just the interview with Tony Bobolinsky, which Tucker Carlson mm-hmm, had, Tucker. but also Brett Baer, and I can't remember who the reporter was, covered these issues of actually seeing emails that showed that the business relationship was known by the, you know, that the business relationship was known to Joe Biden. And so there was good journalism done on this. It's just that nobody else was doing any good journalism on it. And none of the other networks were doing anything on it. But yeah, now you have yet more confirmation, you know, but I'm interested that Politico finally says something today, but they have a lot to make up for after what they did either through silence or through their own form of misinformation. No, it's like a now this can be said type of thing where they all get together and say, shh, not convenient, not the good, not a good time, not a good time. There's an election to win. And then it's like, okay, uh, now it can be revealed because the election is safely behind us and Trump is out. Uh, Last question, Molly Hemingway, and it also deals with this issue of the president's son, not to focus too much on this one sliver of what you've written. Uh, but yesterday at the White House, Jen Psaki was asked a question by the New York Post um, about 
Hunter Biden and this art scheme that he's got going on where it's, you know, he's a brand new artist and people are spending huge amounts of money on the art and they say, oh, we have no idea who's going to buy it. So there's no currying of favors possible. But Hunter was at one of these events. It all stinks to high heaven. Ethical experts on both sides of the aisle say, nope, this does not make sense. This does not look good at all. Saki was asked about it at the White House and her response was, I know this is your favorite topic, talking to the New York Post. But again, it's still the purview of the galleries. The president remains proud of his son. That was her answer, sort of uh, sniffing at the New York Post that had their accurate reporting censored a year ago and just referring it off to the galleries and the gallerist, who I guess is in charge of this. Quickly, Molly, your reaction to that. It's just appalling. And when you're dealing with an artist at his skill level, which is, I'm not saying he's bad, but he's more like amateur level. You, The idea that he would be getting paid these massive sums of money without disclosing who they are from. In fact, transparency right, is what's needed here, not secrecy. If we knew who was paying and we really did understand who was paying these exorbitant amounts, then that would do that would do more to to prevent corruption than hiding no. it behind Molly, this scheme. it's just the purview of the gallerist. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to have to refer you and all further questions to the gallerist, who I guess is like some super mm-hmm. important government mm-hmm. official now uh, that's running this policy. And uh, we should not worry our silly little heads about uh, this potential corruption. <sighs> We've got to leave it there for now. Molly Hemingway of The Federalist, a Fox News contributor, most importantly this week, out with her book, Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections, available everywhere. Molly, good luck. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Guy. Take care. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Since we're on the subject of the first son, Hunter Biden, a friend sent me this yesterday. It's a meme, and I admit I did chuckle. It was John Gruden, the now departed coach of the Vegas Raiders in the NFL. He resigned. Some emails came out over the years where he had sent a bunch of emails that had offensive things in them with anti-gay slurs and stuff that was alleged to be racist, some stuff that was uh, offensive to women. It was a whole litany. So he has stepped down from that position. The meme is John Gruden with a Hunter Biden mask that he has put on the front of his head. And it says John Gruden now identifies as Hunter Biden in order to get the media to ignore his emails. (laughs) That's more of a commentary on the media than anything else. And good Lord, Do they deserve it? As we just discussed in the previous segment with Molly Hemingway about her new book. If you missed that, it's available on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, Jonah Goldberg, still to come, Brian Riedel, and much more. It is The Guy Benson Show. More straight ahead. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show.
It's a new hour on The Guy Benson Show from our beautiful brand new D.C. Bureau and our studios, the Tony Snow Studio at Fox News D.C. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast on demand for free every day. It's a really good deal if you cannot listen live, which we recommend, of course, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time as we air. Fox News alert as we begin our middle hour. The Dow closes ever so slightly down, a fraction of a point, so basically flat, ending the day at 34,377. Joining us now is Jonah Goldberg, editor-in-chief of TheDispatch.com, a Fox News contributor, fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a nationally syndicated columnist and author of multiple books. He also occasionally sleeps and he has some dogs. Jonah Goldberg, welcome back. Hey, man. Great to be back. So I'd like to talk about this column that you wrote and you've gotten some pushback on it because with a lot of people – You, Jonah, cannot win when it comes to your Donald Trump commentary. People who love Donald Trump and many Republicans think that you've been far too tough on him, too harsh on him. And then here you are offering what seems to me to be an obvious truth about the sort of idea and the futility of an anti-Trump third party. And then some of your never Trump, if you will, allies have now turned on you and are – going after you for this, saying, oh, you know, he's going wobbly, he's going weak. What was your overall thesis here, and why is it drawing so much negative attention and and sort of anger when, to me, it seems just obviously, manifestly true? Well, I mean, um, I'm not sure. I'll be actually surprised if you completely agree with the argument I made on this, but we'll, we'll play it out. I make the argument that Look, it's an unpopular argument with um, much of the Republican Party and conservatives these days. But I make the argument that Donald Trump is not meaningfully conservative in in many important ways. And obviously, in some ways, he is. But I also think that he has unleashed a tide of imitators that are not conservative at all. I think the stuff that Josh Mandel and J.D. Vance are doing is a grotesque perversion of conservatism, rightly understood. Um, The conservatism that I grew up with, the conservatism of William F. Buckley, the conservatism um, of Ronald Reagan. And the problem that we have right now, in part because of the, the collective action problems that we have with how primaries are done, is that uh, this sort of insurgency, whether you want to call it nationalist or illiberal or whatever, um, is corrupting the GOP and turning the GOP into essentially a right-wing statist party in many respects. And so I'm trying to figure out ways in which um, conservatism can uh, fight back in a lot of ways. And one thing I proposed was having a third party that um, would essentially play the role of spoiler in some cases, but it would impose discipline from outside by simply saying that um, if a Republican starts talking about crony capitalism and industrial policy and and all these various things, um, if it just sort of loses its mind, I mean, you have Jim Jordan saying that we should ban all vaccine mandates, including, you know, not just for COVID, that, you know, a conservative part, or if you are a Republican who pays lip service to what is in effect an ongoing a coup attempt 
to rewrite election laws at various states to reject the popular vote um, and 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 subvert democracy, that there should be a party that imposes there should be an outside force that imposes some discipline on this. And the reason why I propose this, and this is why some of the never Trumpier people are mad at me, is because I say that their proposed solution, sort of what Bill Crystal and others have argued, which is for conservatives to just sort of anti-Trump conservatives to join the Democratic Party and work within the Democratic Party towards conservative ends is a non-starter. It won't work. You're not going to get pro-lifers to vote for a, a, a abortion-on-demand right. party. You're not going to get people who support the Second Amendment to support the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden has demonstrated, and I think this is the part that you agree with, Joe Biden has demonstrated he has no interest in reaching out even to centrists and moderates the Correct. way he said he would on the campaign trail. Well, um, not just never that, mind. he said he was one. Right. And instead, he is basically running on the Sanders agenda. And even the Democratic Party that gave him the nomination rejected the Sanders agenda. And so since that option doesn't work, I, I proposed a thought of it, a thought experiment to say, you know, well, maybe try this. That's aroused a lot of objections from several of my friends at National Review. And they are friends and I'm not mad about it. They make some very good points. No, and, and Charles Cook. Charles Cook wrote a response, and so just to be clear, I agree with you on the point about the Democrats and not joining the Democrats. I do not agree with your idea of a third party to punish the Republican Party, and for reasons that Charles has articulated very well, I agree with him on that. Even though some of your underlying concerns and criticisms are things that I share as well, so I'm I'm sort of straddling a few different worlds here. But you're getting, as you said on Twitter, a lot of friendly fire from different quarters, which is sort of an interesting thing uh, to watch. And and I'm not sure that I will convince you uh, that your idea is wrong in the next few minutes that we have together on the air. Um, but I encourage people to read your column and maybe read the response from Charles Cook and, and see where they might fall. They might not even agree with the underlying you know, fundamental argument, right, that, that there is a problem here, uh, which is a whole separate question. One thing I do want to ask you, though, Jonah, is, for example, I saw the hardcore Never Trump group, the Lincoln Project, which is now just basically a Democratic super PAC um, with, I think, a lot of ethically dubious practices and people that have been involved and they've been plagued by a number of different scandals. But they're still a thing. They're still around. And they now have ads that they're running about the Virginia governor's race where they are trying to tie Glenn Youngkin, who is a much more traditional Republican candidate than President Trump. He's very different than Trump in a number of different ways. But they're trying to tie him to Trump and not just Trump. They're trying to tie him to, for example, the Charlottesville unpleasantness and ugliness and bigotry that we saw a number of summers ago and basically say this is what the Republican Party is. Glenn Youngkin is this. Youngkin is Trump, which is also what Terry McAuliffe, his opponent, is saying. And it just strikes me as just grotesquely unfair to Glenn Youngkin to tie him to what happened in Charlottesville. And I think it's also undermining one of the points that conservative Trump critics have made about Trump, which is that he does pose sort of this unique threat. If you're then going to say every Republican is Trump and voting for any of these people is complicity in, in all of this stuff, then I think the potency and the power of whatever argument you were trying to make about Trump 
just goes away and it seems to fuel the argument and vindicate the argument that this is just, you know, a a giant pro-democratic racket that's going to use Trump to help elect Democrats for as long as people will give them money. And I wonder what you what you think of that. Yeah, no, I basically agree with you. I think the Lincoln Project, as, as you say, is a Democratic super PAC, as far as I can tell these days. I've never had any respect for Steve Schmidt, who's one of its principals. Um, and this sort of just, this, this points to my general, you know, approach in all of this stuff, which is that my job as a conservative writer, intellectual, whatever label you want to put on me, is to simply tell the truth as I see it and not actually care all that much about the partisan political consequences of it. And I think that one of the problems that you get into when, like, if you let your anti-Trumpism or your pro-Trumpism start making you change your core beliefs in order to fit with a political movement or faction, you're doing it wrong. So all of these supposed conservatives at the Lincoln Project who said they were just starting out to save the GOP, it turns out that once they went down that path, they just started becoming, you know, indistinguishable from from liberal Democrats. And I think that, you know, Jen Rubin of the Washington if not Post. Worse. Is, yeah. And so this is this is a huge that the temptation to bend to the political tide is very strong and it's very human. And my job, as I see it, is to tell the truth as I see it and not get caught up in like, oh, my gosh. You know, this argument is bad for the Republican Party. Well, so be it. If the Republican Party is doing something bad, I have no problem saying they're doing something bad, even if it will be bad for them at the polls. Glenn Youngkin, if I lived in Virginia, I would vote for the guy. I think the attacks on him are overdone. I don't like the way he has to um, sort of kowtow and pay lip service to a lot of Trumpy stuff. Although, I mean, he and and to make your point, Jonah, and to wrap this up because we're up on a break— you have a different job than Glenn Youngkin. He has to get elected. And what you said about supporting him theoretically, if you lived in Virginia, I do. I have voted for him and proudly so. And some of these attacks, as you say correctly, are just ludicrous. Jonah Goldberg on The Guy Benson Show, up on a break. We'll be right back after this. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. I'm Guy Benson here on The Guy Benson Show. Got some new madness to share with you out of the state of California, of course. Where else would it be? I know the punchline is Florida, man. The national punchline is California. Apparently, they're not in on the joke either because they just reelected Newsom by 30 points. They look around. They say, yes, more of this. And they're getting more of this. Nice and hard. Enjoy everyone out there. I mentioned one of these stories on TV. We were chatting about it earlier in the week on Fox News primetime. I was the guest of Jesse Waters, who's in this week. This story about Gavin Newsom now passing a ban on sales of gas-powered lawnmowers and other small equipment like that, starting in 2024, because it's environmentally unfriendly. I'm sure it's not equitable in some other way. Even though this is going to really hurt small businesses, some of which are run by people of color, like landscaping businesses. They're going to be forced to buy much more expensive, less efficient equipment to cut people's yards. I wonder how long this will last if celebrities end up paying a lot more to get their properties and their estates manicured properly 
or if some of these small businesses just go under. I know that they don't care about that in California. It's why so many people have left. You can't afford to live there. And now they're going to make life much harder for small landscaping businesses. Isn't that fun? It's for the environment, of course. So you have to have like battery powered leaf blowers and the like. Pressure washers are also in this category. So you cannot use a gas powered pressure washer if you're going to buy a new one in order to rid your front stoop of human feces. If you're in San Francisco to find some other way, some more equitable way that comports with environmental justice to get rid of the, uh, the human excrement that is all over that city. It's going well. And as we mentioned earlier in the week with some of the other laws that they're passing out in California, just regulations everywhere. It's like they sit around thinking up new ways and dreaming up new options to control people's lives, to make things more expensive, and to do it all for these you know woke left-wing projects. In this one on the leaf blowers and the lawnmowers, they're throwing in some money, taxpayer money, of course, to help some of these small businesses modernize. But the industry, they're already saying, spokespeople and folks in that line of work are saying this is nowhere close to what it's going to cost us. We're not going to be made whole with this you know, relative pittance that you're throwing in our direction. But all the mandates and requirements and regulations will be in place and you will have to comply or I'd imagine you'll have to face crippling fines. This is how they do things in the state of California. You've got homelessness everywhere. You've got crime exploding. People can't afford to live there. Housing is totally unaffordable. There's been an exodus from the state. They lost population. And with all of that going on, right, wildfires all over the place, the government is banning gender-specific toy marketing and gas-powered lawnmowers. This is what they uh, are prioritizing out there. And they're newly empowered by the people of California to do exactly this kind of insanity. The inmates are running the asylum. I just feel bad for the people who want to leave California but don't have the wherewithal to do it. But I would have been so out of there long ago. Then there's this one, an update, sort of a factor follow-up on a story that we've already previously covered. Walgreens has announced that they are closing five more locations of stores in San Francisco due to overwhelming, quote, organized retail crime, i.e., Looting, looting and shoplifting. You've seen these videos, right? People come in with garbage bags and just help themselves to whatever they want and then run out just with impunity. The police aren't responding. The DA in San Francisco is not prosecuting lower level crimes anymore. They've basically decriminalized shoplifting. So people are shoplifting all the time. Security guards are told to stand down. The police aren't going to do anything. Don't confront these people. It could become a violent crime. So just let them do whatever they want. Let them take what they want. And they do. And it's on camera in many cases. And the idea is, oh, well, these stores, they have insurance. And these are big, mean corporations. And they can absorb. They can't. So they are closing down even more locations. 
This is not the first five. This is five on top of all the other stores, CVS, Walgreens, and other similar convenience stores that have just said, we can't operate here anymore. This is not sustainable. So, sorry, we're closed. Store is gone. Sorry, people who work there. Sorry, cashiers and managers and pharmacists. Sorry, neighborhood people who shop at these Walgreens. Sorry, senior citizen who picks up your prescription at this convenient Walgreens. It's closed because we won't enforce anti-crime laws in this city. That is how things are going in San Francisco. However, rest assured, ladies and gentlemen, in the remaining Walgreens that have not yet closed because of mass looting and shoplifting, the toy aisles will be gender neutral moving forward. You better believe they'll enforce that only in California, where they're shutting down the stores because of mass, essentially legalized looting. And the reaction from the powers that be is we need to stop the harmful stereotypes of gender specific toy marketing and Walgreens and CVS and all the rest of them will be forced to comply while the shoplifters, well, Have at it. Get your free gender-neutral toys here. It's San Francisco. Oop, watch your step. We couldn't power wash that away. Sorry. That's also illegal. You can't make it up. The land of the woke, they're loving it out there. And a lot of people are leaving. The Guy Benson Show continues next with an update, some really important updates, actually. Interesting stuff out of Virginia and the intriguing gubernatorial contest that is raging just across the river from where I sit with the nation's eyes upon Virginia. Those updates, those developments, straight ahead. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Midway through the show, midway through the week on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. We've been covering pretty heavily the Virginia governor's race because it is the biggest race in the country right now. It is very close. The Democrats have a slight lead in the public polling, but all the fundamentals of this race suggest that it is awfully, awfully competitive. And there are a few developments that I would like to bring to your attention. So there have been a few polls that have come out in the last few days, and they all have Terry McAuliffe ahead by one to four points. Basically within the margin of error, but he's been ahead in these public polls. I went back, and I won't bore you with all the details, but I went back because I remember there were some misses on public polling in Virginia in recent cycles. So, for example, in 2013, last time McAuliffe ran and won, he was ahead in the polling average by six points, but he won by two and a half points. So that's a miss by three and a half points. That kind of miss in that same direction would mean he would lose right now. That was 2013. In 2014, Senator Mark Warner, a Democrat, was up for re-election. The polls had him ahead by 10 or 11 points on average. 
going into Election Day. It was not even going to be close, not even competitive against Ed Gillespie. Gillespie lost by less than one percentage point. It was 0.8% win for the incumbent Democrat. I mean, that was a polling miss of almost double digits in Virginia, where the Democrat massively underperformed in a what turned out to be a Republican year, 2014. Now, there are a few Virginia elections where the polls have been just about accurate. A slight Democratic underperformance, maybe. And then there's the bucking of the trend in 2017 when governor then candidate Ralph Northam, blackface, that guy. He was ahead in the polls by about three points heading into Election Day. This was 2017. And he won by almost nine points. So that was a big miss that actually benefited the Democrats that time. That, of course, was the first year of Donald Trump's presidency in a state where Donald Trump was not popular. And generally, Virginia and their voters in Virginia vote in sort of a backlash election in the first year of a new president. They vote against the incumbent at the White House on the state level. So I think what's probably giving some heartburn to the candidates and to their campaigns on both sides is, will the polls look roughly accurate this year or is there going to be a miss again that everyone's talking about? The fact that I could go back within the last decade because Republicans have not won a single statewide race in Virginia, not one, not for governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, U.S. senator, president, any of the statewide races. They've lost all of them since 2009. They swept in 2009, the first year of Obama, have lost every single one since. But as I mentioned, there were a few close shaves that were not supposed to be that close, and then they were all of a sudden. If that dynamic roughly plays out this year, that's a Glenn Youngkin Republican win. Now, here's a story relatedly from the Washington Examiner by David Drucker. Quote, Republican Glenn Youngkin led Democrat Terry McAuliffe in an internal Republican Governors Association poll conducted early this month, putting the GOP on the precipice of winning a major statewide race in Virginia for the first time in a dozen years. McAuliffe trailed Youngkin by a narrow three percentage points with about a month to go in this key off-year election. So in this same internal polling from the RGA, Youngkin was down by 11 back in May, back in the spring, but the trend line has improved and improved, pulling even and then ahead for the Republican. The trend line, quote, suggests to Republican operatives working on the race that the GOP is on track to win the contest for lieutenant governor and attorney general, too, and possibly to recapture the Virginia General Assembly. You get into some of the cross tabs in the internals. This is interesting. In this October poll of the Yunkin McAuliffe race, the Republican Yunkin was hitting margins in key battlegrounds that if they hold would make it very difficult for his Democratic opponent to win statewide. These margins included Yunkin at 43 percent in the northern Virginia region, which encompasses Metro D.C. If Glenn Yunkin is in the low to mid 40s in northern Virginia, he has a very good chance of pulling an upset. This poll also showed him ahead with 53% of the vote. Again, this is a poll in the Richmond suburbs of Chesterfield and Henrico counties. The poll showed that President Biden is underwater with independence statewide. 61% of independents in Virginia holding an unfavorable view of President Biden, who is dragging McAuliffe down, according to this poll. Now, I always say beware of internal polls. Sometimes parties will put them out just to sort of rally the base and keep morale high. 
and give people hope because you need people to turn out. But sometimes the internal polling is better than the public polling. And we saw that quite a lot, even in 2020, where internal Republican polling looked a lot better, not just for Donald Trump in some of the states, but especially at the House race level, where Democrats were caught totally off guard by the fact that they lost seats in the House by double digits, where they underperformed in a bunch of Senate seats. I mean, Susan Collins, the public polling had her down by nine points. She trailed in every poll, every single public poll in the entire year, 2020. And then she won handily and avoided even a runoff under this system that they have up in Maine. So I would not completely dismiss this internal polling either, even though I'm still traumatized and triggered by Mitt Romney 2012, where the campaign felt confident they really believed that they were going to win. And of course, they did not. On the Democratic side, you think of Hillary Clinton. They were absolutely convinced. They were reportedly popping champagne on the campaign plane that day on Election Day. They were so sure they were going to win. And then, oops. So sometimes your own numbers, you get high on your own supply and you're wrong. But I don't think it is implausible that Republicans could have an advantage in Virginia and that the public polling is off by a little bit because it's been off quite a lot recently in a number of different states. And I will also add this from the examiner piece, quote, the Republican pollster for the RGA in Virginia is called On Message Inc. In 2020, the firm picked up on the tightening of the presidential race in Arizona, where Biden bested Trump by a paper thin margin and proved more accurate than much of the public polling in Florida where the former president won by 3.3 points. So you can cite a few examples where this internal pollster actually was better than the big public pollsters aligned with media groups in some key states last year. Now, they probably had some misses along the way as well, which is why it's all an imprecise science and why everyone is sort of holding their breath. They're calling in Barack Obama to campaign for Terry McAuliffe. They're calling in Jill Biden, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden to campaign for Terry McAuliffe. Joe Biden... Nowhere to be found. Now, McAuliffe says, oh, yeah, we'll have Biden back, but he doesn't want to say the name Biden. So we'll see. Apparently, they're bringing in the mayor of Atlanta, Mayor Bottoms, who's failing so badly with horrible crime levels, et cetera, that she's actually not even trying to run for reelection. She's so unpopular. But I guess McAuliffe thinks she'd be an asset in Virginia for some reason. So they're bringing her in. I want to bring you a few other updates from this race because I just got a little bit geeky on the polling. Here's what Terry McAuliffe is doing. He is trying to nationalize the race as much as possible. He wants the race not about Virginia, not about Virginia's economy, not about schools in Virginia, not about crime in Virginia. He wants it to be about two words, Donald Trump. And he cannot stop saying Trump's name. They've got placards printed up. Trump equals Yunkin. Yunkin equals Trump, which is ludicrous. Spend four seconds watching video of these two men. They are both Republicans. They agree on some things, many things, not everything. They are not at all similar in terms of the way that they campaign, the way that they talk. There are some significant issue differences. The comportment is just night and day. But this is what the Democrats are trying to do because Trump is still unpopular in Virginia. He lost Virginia by 10 points, although Biden is now very unpopular in Virginia, or I'd say substantially unpopular in Virginia, which is why McAuliffe won't talk about Joe Biden. Right at that debate a couple of weeks ago where McAuliffe stepped in it on education and parents, he also said Trump's name repeatedly, like 14 times, never said the words Joe Biden during that exact same debate for a reason. He wants this to be Trump, Trump, Trump. His ads are about Trump. His comments are about Trump. And in an interview with CNN on Sunday, he said Trump so often 
that Dana Bash, the anchor, made a drinking game joke about how often he was saying Trump. In fact, this was a little montage that the Yunkin people put together to highlight just how ridiculous and obsessive it is. This is clearly what McAuliffe's people in their focus groups to their polling, they've decided their ticket to victory is this cut 15. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump. I'm glad I have two cups here so I can keep drinking when you uh, when you mention Donald Trump's name. Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump. I think it was 18 times, something like that. That was one interview. That was one segment on CNN. Donald Trump, Donald Trump. He's got a strange accent for a Virginian. I mentioned that yesterday. Then the drawl, he'll put on this weird Southern drawl occasionally. I don't get, it's just a thing for me. A little pet peeve. Not important. But clearly you know what his message is. Trump, 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 Donald Trump. Will it work? It might. There's a lot of Democratic voters in Virginia. The state has gotten bluer. People have moved to Virginia from Maryland and D.C. This is what we see sometimes in the exodus from California, right? The Californians are like, oh, well, this isn't good here anymore. Let's go elsewhere and keep voting the same way. That is what's happened to Northern Virginia. If a Republican can't win under these circumstances in Virginia this year, I think you stop referring to Virginia as a purplish blue state and just call it a blue state. Meanwhile, McAuliffe is giving other interviews where he is just pulling statistics and fear-mongering quote-unquote facts out of his ass about COVID. I don't know where he's coming up with this stuff, but he's saying it over and over again. This is an ad and a web video that the Youngkin campaign put out. Here's what Terry McAuliffe is doing. This is a bunch of different TV interviews that he's been giving, making claims, and then I will fact-check him in just a moment. Listen to cut 16 on COVID. We had 8,000 cases yesterday in Virginia. We had 8,000 cases yesterday. Just this week, 8,000 cases on Monday in Virginia. We in Virginia today, 1,142 children are in ICU beds. Okay. Sounds scary. Right? He's out there pretending that Glenn Youngkin is an anti-vaxxer, that he's going to let COVID run wild in Virginia and kill a bunch of people. And to emphasize this smear, he's talking about the caseload of COVID in this state. In three different interviews over the course of a few weeks, he talked about how we had 8,000 cases yesterday, 8,000 cases today. The real numbers were between two and 3,000 on each and every one of those days. Like he wasn't even close. He was off by a factor of three or four. Like 8,000 is not close to 2,000. It's just not. He quadrupled the real number and just kept saying it. 8,000 cases, not true. The last bit of that clip is the one that was most astounding to me where he has this very specific statistic, like he's committed it to memory. He is so concerned about the well-being of children in Virginia that this number is seared into his brain. Terry McAuliffe in the interview, and this goes to Democrats and some of the fear-mongering nationally on COVID. He says there are 1,142 children in ICU beds in the state. Would you care to guess what the real number was? There were 460 ICU beds occupied with people of all ages on that day. He said there were 1,100 children in ICU beds in Virginia. The actual number was 460, and that was not children. That was everyone, a tiny fraction of which were children. And yet he just invents this number. I have no idea where he got it. 1,142 kids in ICU, but not even close, not even close to the truth. But he just says it because he wants people scared about COVID and they want on the Democratic side, for voters to trust them and trust Terry McAuliffe, even though he's just lying about the actual statistics. 
It's actually embarrassing. And last but not least, a triple down from this man about critical race theory and the battles on race, essentialism and propaganda in schools. He keeps saying it's a lie and that those people who are upset about it or concerned, they're the racists and it really bothers him. Cut 17. He talks about critical race theory. He talks about having these parents meetings on critical race theory. It really bothers me because it is a racist dog whistle. It's not a racist dog whistle. And we had Christopher Rufo on the show yesterday, who's an expert, explaining specific examples that refute this lie from Terry McAuliffe. And what he wants to do, of course, is call what is actually, I would say, tantamount to a form of racism. He wants to call people upset about it, noticing it, objecting to it. He wants to call them racist or engaged in racist dog whistles. He isn't backing down from the talking point. He is bear hugging it. There's one thing that can be done about it, which is for Virginians to vote. Early voting is open. The election is November 2nd. It is nip and tuck. It could go either way. And the country is absolutely watching this one. This is a bluish state. If Yunkin can pull off the upset, the meltdown among Democrats on the left is going to be epic. We'll see what happens. Getting close. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. Don't go anywhere. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Here's a story from Jason Rance, our pal. At KTTH, our affiliate out in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, and it is a perfect fit for Woke Tales. Woke Tales! A Seattle elementary school is canceling Halloween over equity and inclusion concerns. Benjamin Franklin Day Elementary School in Seattle, and that's, I mean, already problematic. You're mentioning a founding father, a white cisgendered founding father big problems there in any case typically they have hosted halloween festivities every year including a pumpkin parade and all the stuff that you typically do as a kid for halloween but it has been canceled this year they are getting rid of it because of diversity inclusion and equity concerns here's the statement from the school halloween creates a situation where some students must be excluded for their beliefs, financial status, or life experience. Costume parties often become an uncomfortable event for many children, and they distract students and staff from learning. Large events create changes in schedules with loud noise levels and crowds. Some students experience overstimulation, while others must deal with complex feelings of exclusion. It's uncomfortable and upsetting for kids. And apparently the school also said that Black students don't celebrate Halloween as much as other students, and therefore it's exclusionary and marginalizing for the students of color, apparently. So Halloween is canceled by this school because equity. Can you imagine being a kid and having Halloween taken away at your school because the adults have decided there's too much noise and too much fun and some people don't celebrate? Halloween is a universally celebrated holiday for the most part in the United States. Everyone is included. You get candy. These are the Halloween Grinches. And they're the woke 
scolds who are some of the most miserable, insufferable, killjoys on the planet. I mean, not only are they wrong about almost everything, they are such a drag about everything. Like, oh, there's fun. We can't have that. Shut it down. Equity. But if you're like a black kid being like, what do you mean I don't do Halloween? Just wokeness. Robbing people of fun and joy 24-7 like it's their job. How can we not beat these people? How do these people keep winning? They are such weird losers, honestly. Sorry if that's a little harsh, but man, it's just <laughs> pathetic. It's so pathetic. Now oh, they're protecting the kids from Halloween. Great. It's very uncomfortable and upsetting for kids. Remember how how upsetting and uncomfortable Halloween was and free candy in school when you were a kid? How upsetting and marginalizing and uncomfortable that made you? <laughs> Just, uh, well, that's the Pacific Northwest. Enjoy, kids. This is what your parents have voted for. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show. Straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time for the Happy Hour. Wednesday edition on The Guy Benson Show. Appreciate you listening every day, Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And the happy hour is our final hour of each program. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, the podcast, free of charge, on demand every day, should you miss anything live. And the happy hour also sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, as always. Delicious, refreshing, and coming to a place near you sometime soon if it hasn't already arrived. You can check out where the long drink is sold near you. You can also order online, thelongdrink.com. Many of you have tried it, and you let me know about it when you try it, which I love. Keep those messages coming. Thelongdrink.com, 21 plus only, and please drink responsibly. Joining us now is Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And when I think happy hour, I think budget talks with Brian Riedel. And Brian, it's good to have you here. I've ever been associated with a happy hour in terms of my budget work, but I'm, I'm flattered and honored. Well, I want to first say you are a Wisconsin guy, yes? Yes, I am. Born and raised. Are you based in Wisconsin, or are you, uh, have you moved for work? I, I live outside Washington, D.C. now, but I, I lived in Wisconsin through age 21. Okay, well, I am heading to your great state this evening, and I'll be doing the show from Milwaukee tomorrow, so I will give a big wave hello to the Badger State and everyone as they walk around drinking beer, eating cheese. I don't know what else you do in Wisconsin. Fish fry on Fridays. Do I have it covered mostly? Yeah. Packers uh, football. We're, we're, we're a cheesehead. Uh, talk about the Packers and definitely mention something about the Bucks being champs. You'll fit right in. Yes. I won't mention the Brewers. No. No. That hurts. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. But congratulations to all the Braves fans and our listeners down at 106.7 in Atlanta. In the meantime, Brian, I want to get your reaction to a few different things. The Democrats are still having a hell of a time 
getting their ducks in a row on all of this spending. There was a Politico story today about the White House being upset with both Manchin and Cinema because those two aren't necessarily aligned. There's a quote from Cinema saying, not directly to Politico, but to one of her colleagues that was then relayed to Politico, that she's saying, no, this is not some mystery. The White House knows what my requests are and what my demands are. They keep pretending, or at least the media keeps covering, like she can't be pinned down and she's just floating around. She said, no, I've told them exactly what I will do, exactly what I won't do, but they don't like what they're hearing. And so there's still clearly some trouble in paradise. Meanwhile, the economy is getting battered with inflation. We talked about that earlier. The worker shortages, the shortages of goods which is now coming into clearer focus. You've got all these outside issues that are very real. Inflation, of course, as I mentioned, creeping up, which definitely plays into large amounts of spending that are being proposed. It has to be considered within that context. And yet the Democrats basically are full speed ahead trying to get whatever they can done. But what they can or cannot do remains unclear. Part of the problem, said Speaker Pelosi yesterday when she was lecturing reporters, is the media. The media has not been carrying enough water for the Democrats, apparently. Here's what she said during a press conference in Cut 4. Our latest CBS News poll shows that only about 10% of Americans describe themselves as knowing a lot of specific things that are in the reconciliation package and that the majority don't know anything at all. So do you think you need to do a better job at messaging and going forward, how do you sell this? If ultimately you have to well, I think you all could do a better job of selling it, to be very frank with you, because every time I come here, I go through the list. It is hard to break through when you have such a comprehensive package. Now, we actually clipped that for time. But, Brian, what was entertaining to me was she scolded them because, like, oh, we always go through the list. And then she started to launch into the list and got one and a half items in before she gave up and moved on, which made me laugh when I watched her say that. But her message to the media was, you people should do a better job of messaging this for us. And to me, as I mentioned earlier in the program, this is just so perfectly emblematic of the Democrats' arrogance and sense of entitlement, maybe not unfounded or misplaced in their assumption that the media will and should at all times do their bidding, carry their water for them. She just said it out loud. When she's expressing that kind of frustration with her friends and allies in the news media, you know things aren't going great for the Democrats broadly, right? Yeah, I mean, this is what they call in Washington a Kinsley gaffe, which is accidentally telling the truth. Um, she is admitting that the Democrats see the establishment media as a wholly owned subsidiary and essentially comms department of the Democratic Party. And if you if you watch generally coverage from a lot of the, the, the networks and publications we're all thinking of, they generally, of course, will spin Democratic policies in the best possible way and make any conservative policy look like the end of the world. We remember how the 2017 tax cut were portrayed as the end of the world, Armageddon. They were going to yep. kill 20,000 people. They were going to, people were going to die. And also it was a budget-busting <laughs> budget disaster because it was $1.5 Meanwhile, you know, the Democrats put out spending bills that, are, that this year total $6 trillion, and it's all balloons and butterflies and joy and benefits. So I, I, I find it comical. But part of the issue with, with not getting the message out 
is that the $3.5 trillion plan really has no theme. It's just a grab bag of dozens of old and tired liberal initiatives. There is no grand, easy theme to sell. It's just like the infrastructure bill, and it's just like the stimulus. Every interest group needs to have their box checked, and so you just end up with this unsellable, somewhat boring, huge grab bag of liberal initiatives. I know they keep saying and asserting that it's popular, and there are some polls that show, you know, on the yes or no, there are more people who favor it than not. But then there are other more specific polls that reference things like price tag, pay-fors, tax increases, deficit spending. The enthusiasm and appetite diminishes. And there was another poll from CBS that I mentioned on the show yesterday that found that only 36 percent of Americans responded that this bill, this spending bid, would actually help them and their family. 36 percent. That does not strike me as something that is overwhelmingly popular that people are passionately committed to. I know that's what we're supposed to believe. That's what they keep telling us over and over again. But I'm not really convinced that that's true. Right. I mean, if you look at some of the polls that show the the reconciliation bill being popular, they're comically worded. The question is, would you like to have all of these free benefits that will cost you nothing? Well, of course, the answer to, to that is going to be yes, if you don't mention the deficits, the taxes, the inflation. But take a look at this. Recently, there were a couple polls on the child credit expansion, where the Democrats hiked the child credit to $3,000 or $3,600 for a child under six. This is supposed to be the centerpiece of their plan and the most popular provision that even Republicans are nervous to oppose. And yet a plurality preferred that that policy expire. They could, when you actually get into the specific policies, they couldn't even get a majority for what was supposed to be the most popular centerpiece of their agenda. So I'm not seeing rallies or, or a huge push for this plan at all. I'm seeing some push polls that sell utopia for free and see a public go, oh, well, if that's the case, I guess I'll accept it. On the spending and the price tag of this, we spoke recently about this totally risible talking point that it costs zero dollars. It costs nothing because they say it's deficit neutral. It's just totally nonsensical. It's also not going to be deficit neutral. And Pelosi sort of, again, gave the game away. She is struggling on her own to figure out how to frame this because she's telling her members we have to cut some stuff out of this large bill. We've got to get rid of some of the programs that are in there because we just don't have the support for all of this. And she's uh, she's frustrated about it. She's clearly upset with the moderate senators out there and a few others who are saying that they can't support all of it. So she put out a memo to her team saying, we're going to have to reduce the spending and cut a lot out of this bill. But then she was pressed on that by CNN. Well, what are you going to get rid of? And she said, well, we may not get rid of anything, but what we might do is pare down the number of years that the spending is budgeted for and then go from there. Brian, if you could just quickly explain how that trick would work. I'm surprised they didn't land on this earlier, quite frankly, where they're going to try, I think, to get as much of this through as possible, but then use this gimmick, this trick, to make the top line dollar amount look lower while getting what they believe will be permanent welfare and entitlement programs in place moving forward in perpetuity. That, that has been used time and time again in Washington, although never to this brazen level. The idea is instead of spending $3.5 trillion over 10 years, we could just spend $1.5 trillion over four years. You can run all the same programs and just do it for four years instead of 10. The gimmick being, what happens at the end of four years? Does Congress actually allow these programs to expire, or do they renew them? The idea being, of course, by the time these policies have been implemented and people are used to the 
benefits and they become part of the baseline, it'll be as hard to get rid of as Obamacare proved hard to hard to get rid of. And yeah. so they'll way, just they'll just like roll in Tiny Tim and they'll have him, you know, roll up on the steps of the Capitol and he'll cough a few times and he'll say, This Tiny Tim is benefiting from this part of our proposal and the Republicans want Tiny Tim dead unless with this cliff coming up with this deadline coming up unless we restore these programs tiny tim and millions like him will be dead and they'll play on the heartstrings this is what they always do and so if they decide to go with this game the years game where all the programs are in there but for a shorter time period to make the overall dollar amount look less and paid for quote unquote for just a handful of years when you get to the fifth or sixth or seventh year it's not paid for that's deficit spending or that's more tax increases, including even more tax increases on working and middle class people. That is what they might attempt next. And we'll see if some of the so-called moderates and if the Joe Mansions of the world will go along with that scheme. Maybe, maybe not. Brian, I want to ask you another question, though, because a few minutes ago you mentioned the Republican tax reform and tax cuts of 2017. And yes, they were called the end of the world. Frankenstein, Armageddon going to kill people. You did not exaggerate the way that this was messaged by the Democrats and by most of the media as well. I saw your tweets yesterday about actual tax revenues, including from corporate America, and you said this might scramble some of the talking points. I think that you're being far too optimistic. They never, ever abandon their talking points, no matter how false or misleading they are. They stick with them because they're poll tested and they will say them over and over until they're blue in the face because they are unmoved by empirical reality. However, the empirical reality still matters to people who might be persuadable. Tell us what happened in fiscal year 21 on tax receipts, revenues coming into the government, and why that is significant, not only for the current debate, but also calling back to that insanely demagogic and inaccurate debate back in 2017 about tax cuts for the rich and for corporations. Yeah, yesterday, CBO released the final budget numbers for fiscal year 2021, which ended on September 30th. And shock of all shocks, tax revenues soared last year. Specifically, corporate tax revenues increased by 75% in one year, uh, which is, let, let me just say, Honestly, not what they told us was going to happen for the 2017 tax cuts, this huge giveaway to corporations. Conservatives said, you're going to bring a lot of companies home, and the corporate corporate portion isn't going to cost much at all because they won't be leaving the country. Well, corporate revenues leaped 75% last year. Individual revenues leaped 28%. And overall, total tax revenues last year hit 18.1% of GDP for the first time in 20 years. So it was the highest share of GDP tax revenues since 2001. Which and I just to underscore this point, Brian, they told us over and over and over again in 2017, these are tax cuts for the rich, tax cuts for big corporations. They ignored that every income group on average got a tax cut. They didn't want to talk about that. They lied about that incessantly. And they said, basically, this is going to starve the government. You're going to cost the government, quote unquote, all of this money because people are going to keep more of it. These miserly rich people in these greedy fat cat corporations they're going to keep the money that should be going to government programs it's going to cost a fortune and you're going to starve the government and that's why people are going to die and the reality is tax revenues went up because the economy grew growth exploded 
wages went up, all the things that the Republicans and conservatives predicted would happen with the stimulative effect and the growth effects of reducing taxes came to pass. That was actually what happened. All the insane over-the-top predictions from Democrats did not happen. In fact, the opposite, revenues went up. The fact that deficits continue to go up is because we spend way too much. But that's not what they want to tell us. That's not the story that they want to peddle. And just to one more time, repeat what you just said. It's the highest overall tax revenues taken in by the government in 20 years after a COVID recession and after the tax cuts that they told us would do exactly the opposite. Maybe their predictions and projections on, oh, I don't know, anything shouldn't be treated as gospel truth. And when it comes to these debates, Brian, quickly, last word to you. Yeah, I mean, there needs to be some accountability from those who predicted the end of the world. I mean, 75% increase in corporate tax revenues in one year is remarkable. Uh, individual side is growing, too. This proves, once again, the problem is spending. It's spending growing up. We have a budget last year that reached $6 trillion in spending. Perhaps that's the bigger problem, rather than the, the soaring tax revenues. Yep. And now with this age of inflation and... Lower than expected growth and you know job creation, the Democrats are saying, well, let's just spend a lot more money and tax job creators and tax businesses more. It's backwards. It's totally backwards, but they're going for it, and we'll see if they succeed. Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute, a senior fellow there. Brian, appreciate it, and again, I'll say hi to your home state later tonight. Sounds great. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to Guy Benson. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. One thing that makes me happy and brings a smile to my face is the return of NHL hockey. We'll see if my Devils are improved this year. They should be on paper, but already plagued with injuries, so that's fun. But I watched some of the games last night, opening night. I was particularly interested in the late game, which was the Vegas Golden Knights, the newcomer on the block out in the Western uh, Conference, and they've been really good literally since day one. They made the Stanley Cup final in their first season, which is just unimaginable, but they did it, and they've been rock solid ever since they were playing host to the brand new franchise an even newer franchise the seattle kraken so it was the old original six classic hockey matchup of the kraken and the golden knights in the desert but it was cool it's a great game vegas went up three to nothing they call that the most dangerous lead in hockey And wouldn't you know it, Seattle stormed back, tied at 3-3, and then Vegas ended up tacking on a goal at the end, winning 4-3. Very entertaining, hopefully a burgeoning rivalry there. And what was especially cool was ESPN has regained the rights to NHL hockey, or at least some of NHL hockey, and they've been dormant on that sport for years. And with the return of the NHL on ESPN came the return of one of the best theme songs in all of sports TV. I'm a nerd about this stuff. But I'm not alone because they had this whole hype video just about the song. Six minutes long. It was really well done. I retweeted it last night, voiced over by Justin Bieber. He was the narrator for this thing. They had the composer. They had a symphony orchestra performing the song. It is awesome. It charges you up. Here's what it sounds like. 
Oh, yeah. It just oozes hockey. And just that hard-hitting ba-ba-ba-ba at the very beginning got me charged up. They were leaning into that theme song. Cool to see some of the new broadcasting combinations. The theme song is back. Hockey is back. Let's go, Devils. Fingers crossed. The happy hour on The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Stay with us. Guy Benson. It is The Guy Benson Show happy hour. And in our first hour today, around 3.30 p.m. Eastern time, we welcome back Molly Hemingway. Big week for her as she's launched her new book, Rigged. We talked about that book and a few related issues Here's my discussion with Fox News contributor Molly Hemingway. Tell us about the book, Rigged, because I just got my copy. It showed up at my house yesterday. And you're not arguing that, you know, the election was stolen, like Democrats in some cases argued about 2016, that the Russians came in and switched votes or what have you. You're making a broader argument about the media, about big tech enterprises, about that collusion with the Democratic Party on a whole host of fronts that make the entire system feel rigged at times in the eyes of many Americans. And you provide some evidence to say, hey, look, in some cases, there is some uh, collusion and rigging going on. Yeah, I, I knew that there were people who were writing books about the 2020 campaign and election. And it was sometimes the very same people that had done the fake news about the 2016 election where they claimed that Donald Trump won by stealing the election, by colluding with Russia. And I just didn't trust those people to tell what actually happened. And so for me, I just had to research and report it myself. I interviewed people who were on the campaign all the way up to you know Donald Trump and people working at the state level and looked at just what this election was like, and we all know it was more different than any election we'd ever experienced. And part of that was that the media were engaged in a lot of propaganda, you know, suppressing real news stories like a year ago today when they suppressed the real yep. news story about Biden. One year corruption. ago, uh, it was about big tech censorship, like draconian censorship that we have never experienced at this level in our country. But it was also about the changing of election laws. There were hundreds of changes to laws and processes. Sometimes those were done legally. Sometimes they weren't done legally. That flooded the system with tens of millions of mail-in ballots. And then what I thought was most explosive from my research was looking at how Mark Zuckerberg, who's one of the world's wealthiest individuals, most powerful individuals, organ- uh, funded a private takeover of government election offices, which handle all parts of election administration, like voter registration, ballot design, voting, vote counting. And he gave $419 million. Uh, predominantly, this went to to blue counties in swing states to uh, bring in an army of left-wing activists who handled a lot of these election issues that should have been done in a, that should not, you know, you shouldn't have a tech oligarch controlling this level of election administration. This isn't campaigning. This is actual government offices that are supposed to be neutral. So, I mean, just for the record on this show, and our audience knows this, like, Trump lost the election. Biden won the election. I've said this many, many times. I think people who have deluded themselves into thinking that this was stolen in multiple states and all this stuff, you need evidence to support those conclusions. That evidence does not exist. Some people will be angry about that, that I say it. Some people will disagree. That's fine. I think it's a very different thing to say, oh, no, this was the most secure election in the history of any election that we've ever had anywhere on earth, and the system is great, if not perfect, and any changes or tightening up of you know 
COVID or pandemic era rules that were sort of done on the fly. That's all suppression. That's all anti-democracy. I think that the left has overplayed its hand dramatically in the way that they've talked about this. And we've seen those skirmishes in Georgia and Texas. Unfortunately, uh, the left has failed in both of the places that I just mentioned with some of those laws. And you gave this example, and it's perfect on the one-year anniversary. New York Post had an editorial today saying, yeah, it was a year ago that we reported this stuff during the campaign in October of an election year about not just the president's son, not just about his personal failings or foibles or whatever, but about his business dealings and his father's potential knowledge and involvement in those business dealings overseas. And the rest of the media got together and aggressively – ignored the story. Big tech aggressively censored the story to the point that it could not be shared on some platforms. The link, uh, the New York Post had its Twitter account suspended for weeks. They could not tweet about anything. The Democratic Party said this is Russian disinformation. They all said, okay, this is Russian disinformation, even though that is untrue. And multiple scoops from the New York Post subsequently have panned out as accurate. But That would never have been known to the average voter because there was a rigged system in this case, Molly. I'm going to use that word myself, a rigged collusion to get around and say we don't want this to be another Hillary Clinton email thing. We do not want to risk Donald Trump winning again. We cannot allow that to happen. So we are going to link arms and suppress this story as Russian disinformation and hugely powerful institutions and tastemakers got in on this together. And you cannot tell me that that had no impact on the election. And you cannot tell me that that is not deeply, deeply creepy in its wider implications. And Guy, it's not just about what happened in 2020. It's about the fact that nothing has changed going forward. It's not like we are in a different information uh, environment now. If anything, we're in a worse information environment, and this affects elections going forward. My full interview with Molly Hemingway, conservative writer and analyst and author of this new book, Rigged. It's available at GuyBensonShow.com, that full discussion. And the full show, if you missed any of it, is on demand for free every day on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, and wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, there's a chant that conservatives seem to be embracing in many cases. Have you heard of Let's Go Brandon? What does that mean? I'll explain and maybe offer a take, maybe a tad old-fashioned. We'll see. That's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thank you for listening. We'll be broadcasting tomorrow from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in the Badger State. Looking forward to that. We will talk to you then. But first, I want to discuss in our final segment here on this program the great debate over hashtag let's go brandon this is kind of an inside joke not so inside anymore on the right i will explain where it comes from i tweeted about this last night and a lot of people disagreed with me and i knew they were going to disagree with me i knew this would be sort of an ice cold take and yet it is still my take and i will defend it here i'll see if producer christine agrees or has another opinion but it goes back to an interview that was conducted earlier this month at Talladega after a NASCAR race and the winning driver at Talladega that day was Brandon Brown. I do not follow this sport at all. 
so I'd never heard of him. But he was doing a live interview, and the crowd in the background was chanting something that was not suitable for air. And this is a chant that had been going on for weeks. It started seemingly at college football games. It has expanded elsewhere where people decided in groups, usually in large gatherings, to chant bleep Joe Biden. So F Joe Biden is what they've been chanting. And this crowd at Talladega decided to get on the bandwagon. So they're chanting in the background of this televised interview, F Joe Biden. And the reporter who was conducting the interview tried to sort of spin away what was happening. And she claimed that they were chanting, let's go, Brandon, as she was interviewing this race car driver named Brandon. It is very clear. We'll play it for you. It's very clear that is not what they were chanting. But I guess she was probably blushing and a little flustered because that's a word that cannot go over the air. And so she tried to put sort of a non-profane face on what was being said. And that has become now an ongoing joke. Here's what it sounded like at the time. Here's cut 21. As you can hear the chants from the, the crowd. Let's go, Brandon. That's not what they were chanting. It was definitely not let's go, Brandon. It was F. Joe Biden. And I've sort of been simmering a little bit on this issue for as long as this became a trend. Because I saw people sharing excitedly cell phone video, for example, from college football games with a student section chanting this, F. Joe Biden. And I understand sometimes it feels good to see a backlash against a politician that you really don't like. And, well, you know, you don't have to be so uptight about it. You don't have to be puritanical with your language. These are people expressing themselves. That's sort of part of the mentality, I guess, where people have been sharing it and sort of hyping it, almost celebrating that this chant is happening. And I don't know. It's just not something that I think is great. I don't think it's something that we should be celebrating. I don't think this is the way that we should express our disapproval, even though the disapproval is profound and I think well-deserved. He's a failing president making terrible, terrible decisions and policies and statements on almost every front. But I think to get together and chant F any president is kind of gross and not worthy of our discourse. Now, you might say we're well past that point. And I recognize that there are folks who are going to say, oh, you're just sort of a stick in the mud here, fuddy-duddy, old school. This is why Republicans or conservatives lose because of people like you. You're so lame. And look, I am not like a pastor when it comes to my own language all the time. I'm not clutching my pearls over foul language. That's not my point. My point is chanting bleep the president, no matter who it is, is not something that I think is a great look for Americans. I saw that there was an F. Joe Biden chant at a protest in Italy outside the U.S. embassy. Italians were chanting that. And I saw some people on the right sharing that, saying, oh, look, it's going viral. It's going global. I think that if it were 
a Republican president, George Bush or Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump, and you had leftists at events chanting exactly this about them or Europeans abroad chanting this about a president that we like, I think we would have a very different approach. We would say, oh, this is not civil. These people preach civility, and this is the opposite of that. This is so low class, very low class thing to do. Look at these obnoxious Europeans. How dare they say that about our president? Screw them. Right? I think there would be some umbrage, some defensiveness. And just sort of with the golden rule and trying to apply standards evenly, if you wouldn't like this chant with this sort of top two or three obscenity at the beginning of it about a president you like, then maybe you shouldn't engage in it or indulge it or wink at it just because it's a president that you don't like. So the chant in some quarters has now become, let's go, Brandon. I saw someone had let's go, Brandon paged at Chicago O'Hare Airport. Sort of like this inside joke. I saw there was a little kid on TV recently who at the very end of this little appearance leaned into the microphone and said, let's go, Brandon. And there is some amusing component to it. I I get it because of what the reporter said, trying to cover up what the real chant was. And it's become this running, trending joke where members of Congress are tweeting it. Prominent people are tweeting it. The thing is, I get some of that appeal. Because it's sort of winking, poking fun at the media, while also just being like, yeah, there's a lot of people mad about Biden, and this is how they've tried to cover that up, at least what the chant was. But let's go, Brandon, is effectively code for bleep Joe Biden. And you know, I'm not naive about the state of our national discourse. I'm not naive or Pollyannish about where we are as a country politically. I just feel like F the president is something that has always been said. People will always say it, but usually at the fringes. And I'm just not sure I'm a fan of mainstreaming it. So that's why I have not made some let's go Brandon jokes or let's go Brandon tweets aside from My one tweet last night explaining why I don't think it's a great look. And a bunch of people replied in dissent, including more than a few who just replied, let's go, Brandon. Now, is this the greatest crisis facing the United States of America or the way that we talk to each other? Obviously not. I think it's a symptom of a wider issue. I just wish that on our side, we weren't reveling in this. And maybe that makes me lame and old-fashioned. I know we're supposed to be fresh and fun and young and new generation here on the show. That's what the voiceover says. Maybe I'm a little old school on this one. Maybe you think I'm way off. Producer Christina, am I way off? You're not way off, but you're off on this one, I have to say. Do you know what the left said about George W. Bush and the world? Do you know what they said about Donald Trump? I'm not saying 
to go around screaming, you know, bleep Joe Biden. But there's so much frustration in this country right now. Think of all the topics that you talk about every day that frustrates you about Joe Biden. So maybe not saying bleep Biden, but the let's go, Brandon. I'm all for that. That's fine because we get it. And it's 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 more respectful than what the left has ever, ever done to Bush or Trump. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would call it respectful, right? I think it's definitely, definitely disrespectful. You might say it's no worse or they've had it coming or they made this bad or they deserve it or this is how they operate. So we're going to do the same. And why should they be exempt? Why should we operate under mismanners or Robert's rules of order when the other side is you know, doing all this stuff and attacking people in a very personal way all the time? I just don't think that, again, here's a very old school thought. Two wrongs don't make a right. And I think a lot of people on the right think that we are better and behave better than the worst things on the left. Right. So I think it's hard for us to condemn the terrible excesses on the left rhetorically or otherwise, and then sort of all high five each other and grin and relish a bleep Joe Biden chant. And let's go. Brandon is what they're chanting is F Joe Biden just in different words. And it's one thing for like random activists or college students to do it. I'm just not sure more respectable people or folks with platforms or in positions of power should necessarily be feeding into it. Again, it's not this total disgraceful disaster. I just think I think it's a bad look. I wish we wouldn't do it. And maybe I'm just sort of shouting into the ether on this one. I suspect there are some people who agree with me. It makes them a little uncomfortable. But I wanted to have maybe the great let's go Brandon debate between me and Cookie. And Cookie is saying, chillax, Benson. It's basically fine. I'm not tearing my hair out. I'm not lighting my hair on fire over it. I just I just want to get that off my chest. Maybe they're chanting, let's go Benson. Yeah, that's it. That's what they were chanting. <laughs> Back here tomorrow on the Guy Benson Show from Milwaukee. Can't wait for that. Back in the upper Midwest. Swing state country. We will talk to you from Wisconsin tomorrow for the Thursday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at Show.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.